This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Greg Vinkler, the Artistic Director for the Peninsula Players. How's it going, Greg? Pretty good, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Uh, We spoke with Brian Kelsey last year about the 2020 season that uh, unfortunately did not happen. Right. But I'm happy to have you on to talk a little bit about what actually did go down in 2020, because I know the players had a number of projects that you were able to focus on, some different things that you were able to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, we'll talk about the 2021 season, which will be in person coming up here at the end of the month already, correct? Yes. Next week. Right. So let's jump back a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll talk about 2020 and some of the things that you were able to do. So, of course, you weren't able to perform live on stage, but did that give the players any sort of opportunities that they wouldn't have had in a normal year to try to do some different things? Actually, yes. As we were figuring out what to do last year and we had one plan after another that got knocked down, we ended up, of course, canceling the season. And then as many theaters across the country were doing, we wanted to keep our presence out there, you know, remind people that we were still here. So we did a lot of online content and I was responsible for a lot of that. Two of the big projects we did were starting in June, a year ago, June, I started doing interviews once a week through Zoom with at first Peninsula Players alumni. That was June to mid-October, which would have been our season. And that was uh, really fun to catch up with all those people. And then when those ended, we went to interviews about our history, the history of Peninsula Players with Audie Bakery Boyle, our business manager. And because the theater has a long history from 1935 to I think this is our 86th year. It's a long time. (laughs) Right. And uh, so we started doing weekly interviews going through the history. And that was a project with uh, a lot of prep and a lot of editing because we wanted to put up images and remind people what live theater was. And it was wonderful because the local historical societies helped us with material and images And on top of that, the other project that we were involved with was doing audio play readings. We have a winter play reading series called The Plays the Thing, which we do the first Monday of February, March, and April at Bjorklinden, which, of course, last year we couldn't do or we didn't finish. And so I started working with Kevin Christopher Fox, an actor and director in Chicago, who started something he called the Chicago Radio Theater. And through Zoom, we did a series of altogether six audio play readings. And that was incredibly fun because it was the closest thing we could get to performing. And I was in all of them myself as an actor. And for some of them, we had a Foley artist. So it was very much like a radio theater, but 
from my point of view, it was the closest thing to what a play reading is, which is, you know, you leave, it's just the words, the actors and the audience and everything else is left to your imagination. So anyway, it was, we did a wide variety of stuff, which also took a bit of time. And then when we realized that it looks like we may be able to perform this year, we kind of left those behind to prep for this coming season. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the radio plays because one question that I had a lot last year is, in a year where we cannot perform live, how do we define theater? And many different companies took their own definitions of theater and did a lot of different things. You Mm -hmm. saw a lot of Zoom performances, you saw some filmed performances, you saw a lot of different things. And your answer to that question was to do radio drama, which is really unique and really cool to kind of harken back to. It was, my feeling was that filming something or doing a play by Zoom was not theater, it's really more akin to film work. Film is a whole different medium and requires a whole different set of skills that are very different from live theater. So the idea of doing audio play reading seemed to me closest to uh, what we did as the place of thing, which were, you know, readings. And, and to me, one of the most amazing things about live theater that I love is theatrical magic can be very simple and it engages, of course, the audience in that moment. I also want to circle back to the other two projects that you mentioned as well. One thing that I loved about last year, I mean, there was there was a lot to miss last year, of course, but I did love how theater companies were able to reconnect with their audiences and connect their audiences to their company and their actors in ways that they otherwise might not or might not have time to do during a normal season. And I know that you were doing alumni interviews to mm-hmm. start with as well and, and giving a chance to kind of talk with people who have come and gone throughout the player's history, but directly connect them with the audience in that way. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of your goal was to create that connection? Is that something that you don't normally have time for in a normal season, but became a priority? No, in a normal season, we would never have time to do that. So when you asked about the whole year last year was a learning curve. And for for me to go into things like interviews and audio plays was a whole new <laughs> experience. And we, we learned as we went, but it was very, very valuable. Personally, it was difficult for me at first because... I am a stage actor and I can get on stage and act in front of thousands and thousands of people, no problem. But to get up and be myself (laughs) has always, like, I I can never watch myself on film or anything like that because it makes me cringe. But in the interviews we were doing, I had to watch myself for hours at a time to edit them. And I just had to get over myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's a that's a learning curve for sure. I know that when I first started doing the podcast, I had the same thing, listening to my voice mm-hmm. week after yeah, week. Yeah. And I would constantly be critical of my own voice and trying to go in and make sure that I sounded as best I could. Right. And then over time, it just starts to fade away. I don't know if that was your experience, yeah. but I don't even think about my own voice anymore. Uh, yeah, exactly. I started focusing on the material and talking with Audie or whoever was on the other end and making sure that I kept moving things forward because that was really important because well you don't want to bore people and you want to keep it interesting and have an idea about what direction you're going in so I started concentrating on all that and let the rest of my self-image go. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, and the other thing too about producing content last year to live online means that you have an archive of content now that people can access whenever they want. So uh, one way that theater goers might connect more with the the artistic staff or the actors would be in like a talkback, right? But mm-hmm. those are, are generally... They're, they're never filmed. They're never put on to, for people to access as like an archival thing. And so therefore, by doing this type of work, you now have a place for people to come and learn about the actors, to learn about the history outside of the one time engagement that they might have during a live year. Yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity for us as an organization to have an archive of our history that can be used for the future. We got from 1935 up to 1970. So that was, what, 35 years. So we still have a ways to go. And we haven't figured out when we will get back to that. But it will be invaluable for us in the future. Now, as we move on to this year and this season, and how this season came to be, if you listen to the podcast last week, we had Jeff Herbst on from Northern Sky, and he talked about their journey and how they had both the DNR and the Actors' Equity Union to contend with in terms of getting approvals and safety guidelines. And the thing that I want to talk about with the players and the journey that the players went on, because it's, you know, every theater is going to be unique in this, but a lot of people have questions. And the number one theater question that I've gotten over the last year is why are things different and why do they have to be the way that they are, especially with something like an outdoor theater? Mm -hmm. Why are there still safety protocols for an outdoor theater versus, you know, an indoor theater where people might think that that might make more sense. And in regards to the Peninsula Players, you do have kind of a a hybrid feeling, right? Yes. So walk me through what the situation at the players is like and how the journey of, you know, approval through equity and that kind of stuff works. And maybe, maybe it does help audiences to learn a little bit about what the equity unions that you work with are and Mm -hmm. why you work with them and that kind of thing. Because I think that that's the first barrier to understanding what's going on is many of the protocols that you have for this year are not Peninsula players protocols. They are protocols that are handed down from the unions that you work with in order to staff your theater. Yeah. Well, for my belief is for us to call ourselves a professional theater, we need to employ, well, the best people we can. And that invariably involves people who are members of the unions, not just the actors union, but the designers union and the stage directors and choreographers union. And all uh, three of them have, besides the state and the federal government, all have something to say about what we can do. And the main thing about the union stance about this COVID pandemic is the safety of their members. So a lot of the safety protocols that they put out were to protect their members that we hire. And I know most people don't have to think about that. You know, you you just, you're a patron, you go to the theater or whatever entertainment venue. But from our side, once we start explaining what goes into what we have to think about, then people start understanding because it's quite complicated. And early on in the pandemic, because there was a lot of unknown things, you know, that we had to deal with, the health and safety protocols, like from Actors' Equity, was like something like 28 pages long. And it was very, very complicated and had a lot to do with ventilation 
in not just the theater, but in the rehearsal hall, the dressing rooms, housing, etc. Because as you said, we are kind of a hybrid thing, but the New York Office of Actors' Equity considers us an indoor theater, even though when our sides are open, We do seem to be an outdoor theater. And this year, once we finished our proposal for the first show, our proposal included having the side panels all up, all the doors open and the ventilation all going. And through Bold Construction, who helped build the theater, we found that uh, we had uh, three complete air changes in an hour. And that seemed to be satisfactory to Actors' Equity in our proposal. And as the uh, pandemic was going on, the health and safety protocols, for example, that we'd been working with in planning our season expired June 30th. And then they, they had gone from like 28 pages of health and safety regulations to five. And now it's a contract rider. And But this is all assuming that a company is fully vaccinated. That right. has to be a given. And we are... So we're very conscious of, uh, we're still very, very safe on property because we're unique in that we're not just a theater, but we're, uh, we feed everybody. So we're a restaurant and we're a bar and we're a hotel because we house everyone and we're a nature preserve. So it's a combination of making sure that the company stays safe. So we assume that company members will be responsible when they go out into the public in terms of masking and and whatnot so that because if someone contracts covid in our company that's it we have to shut down right so we have to be very careful i'm glad that you mentioned the different facets of what you provide your employees because those are different from theater to theater to theater and they're all parts of these complications so a state theater that hires equity actors wouldn't necessarily have to provide housing for them um, in chicago or the twin cities or new york and so that's not a factor they probably don't provide meals no so that's not a factor as well and each one of those things that you do do as a a destination theater you're Mm -hmm. you're pulling a majority of your actors from outside of door county Mm -hmm. so you house them you feed them Mm -hmm. you kind of all live together for the whole summer And so there were more levels of protocols and approvals that you needed to get from Actors' Equity and the the different unions that you use. Yes. Is that that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it was was a challenge because at first, Actors' Equity wanted us to put a ventilation system in the theater, which would have been incredibly expensive, like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we would need to put in machinery <laughs> that our roof couldn't support. So it was it was a conundrum about yeah. how to deal with that. And fortunately, as the pandemic has gone on and people have gotten vaccinated, things have eased up such that, for example, right now, one of the things that equity requires is that the audience is at least 10 feet from the actors and that's to protect the actors from you know any contagion or anything like that but it's much more relaxed right now and fortunately everyone is fully vaccinated but all of us went through covid compliance training so that all of us would be aware of keeping safe in every workplace on campus. Right. The 10 foot rule is interesting to me. Is the first row at the players, is that within 10 feet of the stage? It's within, yes. So we are not selling the first row. We're starting with the second row and that seems to work out pretty well. 
for the two shows we are doing, we are pushing the scenery and the actors as far downstage as possible to make it as intimate as possible. But we do have to be aware of that 10 foot distance. Right. So I think that that segues us nicely to what the season is for 2021. Yeah. Walk me through what considerations were made this year and, and how you guys came upon the shows that you did and walk me through what people can expect to see at the players this year. Well, as things seem to be easing up and it looked like we might be able to perform, as you probably are aware that a lot of major regional theaters and Broadway have started announcing shows happening in the fall. And we're ahead of that. So we're kind of like a, you know, canary in the cage kind of yeah, thing. You're, like, you're stepping off the cliff first. <laughs> yes. And exactly. Broadway gets to wait till September, but yes. you guys have to venture into the unknown right now. Yes. And, and we are. We decided that what seemed feasible was let's do a couple shows. We'll run them four weeks each. We will not overlap. We'll do them consecutively. And the other considerations was... We need to keep the company as small as possible because we will continue to do safe distance seating. So Linda and I were looking at plays that were small casts without intermission. So we didn't have to deal with necessarily with the public restroom situation and how do we negotiate that. This was before everything eased up. And what would be appropriate in a season at the players in returning. So we went through a lot of plays and it was really, really hard to find plays without intermissions that were small casts and seemed appropriate to us. We ended up deciding on Tally's Folly by Lanford Wilson, which is a two character play, which actually will include uh, Sean and Linda Fortunato directed by David New, and it was the show that they were about to start rehearsals for at Theater at the Center in Munster, Indiana, where Linda was artistic director, and the pandemic hit, and they never got off the ground. And as we looked at it, that seemed like it's an intermissionless show. It's a lovely lyrical play. I just watched a run-through of it yesterday, and I... (laughs) It's funny, and they got me at the end. I was I was crying, but it's beautiful. And so it's really, really nice because they already had the boat. They had a lot of the foliage. They had some of the props and costumes and everything that we're able to use. So hmm. that seemed to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And so that will open July 20th, which is a week from tomorrow. And then, so the other show, I, I really was thinking about something... I thought a romantic comedy would be really, really nice because as people were returning to the theater this year, I think they needed something uplifting, hopeful, positive. And that was really, really important to me. And Tally's Folly is. And so as I was searching, I came across a play called Romance in D by Jim Sherman, which we actually did in 1998, a year after it premiered in Chicago. And it's a very, very sweet show about... Apartment neighbors, a young man and young woman, and involves uh, her father and his mother. And then the two parents get involved. And it's very sweet. But as I was reading it, I I got, (laughs) I got, I thought it didn't have an intermission and it did. And I was like, oh, nuts. I gotta, I gotta find something else. But I went back to it because it was exactly what I was hoping to do. 
and we did a reading of it and took the intermission out and it was less than 80 minutes and I was like fantastic and I talked to the playwright Jim Sherman he said it would be okay if we did it without an intermission he goes yeah and he's very very happy we're doing it he'll be coming up for it and then we got the rights to both because that was you know if we don't get the rights we can't do anything and right. oftentimes that's a problem that for example if uh, there might be another theater in the area that was doing Tally's Folly already or already had the rights we couldn't get it so but right. it worked out yeah, that's, that's interesting. And that's something that I ran up to in college often is we would decide to do a show and we would go to get the rights for it. And then the state theater down the street was, yes, they, they get exactly. the rights for it and kick us off basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not everybody knows that that's kind of part of the game that you have to play as totally. well. Yeah, like a couple seasons ago, I wanted to do, there's a new version of Murder on the Orient Express, Agatha Christie's story that was by Ken Ludwig who wrote Lend Me a Tenor. And I thought, oh, this will be fantastic, you know, because our audiences love Agatha Christie. Murder mysteries are really fun. And I put the season together with that show in mind. And lo and behold, they came back and said, sorry, you can't do it. You can't get the rights. And I was actually, as it turns out, we did another Agatha Christie that was really fun. And I'm kind of glad we didn't get the rights because it was a very big show you know, very complicated with lots of train sets and everything. And one of the reasons was another a major regional theater in Wisconsin had already gotten the rights to do it during the holidays and no other theater in the uh, state could do it. Right. So in a typical year, the players tries to put on a number of different shows that are all distinct from one another. And I know that that's been part of your mission uh, as artistic director is to select plays that offer a lot of different things. Yes. And so I know that the, the casts are small this year, but small casts aren't new to the Peninsula Players. I mean, you've done smaller intimate shows in the past mm -hmm. as well. Sure. I know that you're not doing a musical this year. And of course, that is a whole technical challenge to try to even begin to think about doing. Yes. So I understand it in that way. But in the shows that you have this year, do you feel that you're you're giving a different type of performance than you would normally? Or do you feel like your audiences are going to see a player show as they would expect to see a player show this year? My feeling is that the audiences that come will see what we've been doing for a long time. I'm, I'm thinking that people will walk out of the theater seeing what they've been seeing for many, many seasons. We're going to make it as beautiful and professional and full as possible. You know, one of the sad things about this year is that we will not have any interns, which are the backbone of our operation. We have eight to 10 interns every year. Yeah. And they get a chance to take a step into the professional world, which was invaluable for them in the future, both in terms of experience and making connections. But we don't have any this year. So that's sad because like when in a regular season, when we do five shows, we could not produce without them. Absolutely. Right. Well, and they take on many different roles as yes. the players, right? They're the first people that you see when you're coming and you're parking. Yes. And then mm -hmm. they immediately are flying back to get into their, you know, backstage roles right afterwards. Yep. Yep. So they, they do a, a number of different things. Yes. Yep. yep. Morning till night. And this year, because of a safe distance seating in the theater, we don't have to worry about parking people. People will basically park themselves, which the interns uh, had a lot to do with and was probably one of the crosses they had to bear <laughs> during <laughs> during the season because it, uh, we had limited parking and it was a challenge to cram them all in. 
Yeah. Is there any other um, like considerations that people might not expect, like in terms of the outdoor experience of the players or buying tickets or anything like that? Buying tickets, it will be all electronic. The program will be electronic, but the experience basically will be the same. We weren't sure earlier, but now we know that the beer garden can be open and the bar and the canteen will be open. People can come and picnic. And we do have new picnic tables, so the experience for everyone should be pretty similar to anything they've experienced before, except for maybe the safe distance seating within the theater. Right. There's one other thing that I wanted to chat about, but is there anything else about the 2021 season that folks should know about? Well, (laughs) we've been whenever people are buying tickets, we say, come dress for the weather. Because all the sides will be open and all the doors and everything, which is exactly what we used to say in the old theater when we just had canvas flaps that came up and down. So people have to be aware of that. And, you know, the crazy weather up here is we can never predict, you know, it's going to be hot, cold, rain, windy, whatever. Right. So we're urging them to do that. Great. Be, be prepared. Well, Greg, the last thing that I wanted to chat with you with, because I have you on the podcast, I wanted to mention that this is going to be your last year as artistic director at the Players, correct? That's right. Yes. You have been artistic director over there for over a decade now, right? Uh, well over, yes. Walk me through just a little bit of your story and your time with the Players. Tell me about your first experience with them and, and your, your journey. I know I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but I'm just, I'm curious to, to hear you reminisce a little. Well, I auditioned for the Players for a number of years and never got cast, partly because they kind of had a company of people up here that they used year after year, and I understand that. And then one year in Chicago, I worked with Bob Thompson, who a lot of our audience will remember, and I did a production of Angel Street at uh, Northlight with him, and we became friends, and he said, I got to get you up to Peninsula Players. So one year, which was 1988, I learned that they had hired a group of people, but one of the actors decided not to come. And I called Bob up and I said, I hear so-and-so isn't coming up. I'm available. (laughs) And Bob went back and talked to Jim McKenzie and Tom Birmingham. and And he got back to me and said, come on up. So I went up in 1988. That was my first season. And I've been coming up ever since. And then shortly, a few years later, like in 92, I can't remember now, 91 or something, Jim McKenzie, the executive producer at the time, he said, I'd like you to direct one of the shows, Let Me a Tenor. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And I did, and it went well. And what I realized over time, because I didn't know it at the time, that Bob Thompson was fading away as artistic director, and Jim and Bob were kind of grooming me in that role, and I had no idea. And as time went by, I started becoming involved in choosing the seasons and the plays until I, all of a sudden I was artistic director. Wow. So it was just, it was a slow progression yes. that you just kind of landed in. And then you were there for what, 15 years at this point, 14 years? Ooh, something like that. I think I had the title of artistic director somewhere around 1992 on. Right. Yeah. So that's such a fascinating story. And I love the fact that you started auditioning and not getting into shows to begin with. And that's the part of the actor's life (laughs) that I don't know if people realize is so much of your work is getting rejected. Exactly. You you try, you try, you try, and you might get into one out of every five shows that you audition for. But you're constantly auditioning. And you can't 
take it personally no. and you can't be like, well, they didn't cast me. So I, I want nothing to do with that theater anymore because you're a shining <laughs> example of, you know, if you don't keep going back, who knows? Right. It's, it's very interesting. If you look at a musician, for example, of a violinist or something, their instrument is this violin. In the actor's case, their instrument is themselves, their body, their psyche, their everything. And so when you get rejected, it's very, very hard not to take that personally. But fortunately, I learned over the years that, you know, you never know why you were not cast. And you can find out later, oh, well, the actor that I would pair you with is 10 feet tall, and I just need another actor who's 10 feet tall. Yep. So, sorry. Or I I imagine this character just looks different than you mm -hmm. look, and mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with your look. You're just not the same, right? Yeah. It's yeah. not a, you're not pretty enough, or you're not thin enough, or whatever. It's just, well, I don't see you as the character, because I have a pre-designed yes. vision yeah. for it. And it can be so arbitrary. Yes, it can. I One example that happened, I auditioned for a funny thing happened on the way to the forum out at Paper Mill in New Jersey, and I went in, I did my audition, they seemed to like it, and I got cast. And the director told me afterwards, you know, I had already cast that role, but you changed my mind. So I, there's always hope. Right. As we, as we kind of wrap up here, now that you have been with the players forever, and you're still going to be with the players, right? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll stay connected, sure. Yeah. What's a, what's a takeaway? What do you have as you're kind of looking back at your time as artistic director? Do you have a takeaway from your time there? Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> um, it's been a, a huge, huge part of my life. It has given me so much in so many ways. And I have my goal while I have been there was to make it the best possible theater it could be. I, and of course, building the new theater in 2006 changed the game because it was so much more. So it's been my privilege to work for the theater and to carry on a tradition since 1935. And as I said, you know, we did these history interviews and I realized that what we are today is kind of what Caroline and Richard Fisher started in 1935. And I'm very proud of that. As you said, we do a series of five shows and I tried to make them all different from each other so that every time the audience comes, it's a different world. And that's how it's been since its inception. So I'm very happy to have been part of the fabric of that place over time. Right. And uh, you mentioned that Linda Fortunato is performing in Tally's Folly, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, she is stepping up as the artistic director it, next year. She's in kind of an associate artistic director position this year, correct? Yes, since January. And in September, we, we close our second show September 19th, and then... I'll pretty much be done and she will step in and she will be responsible for next season at the players, which looks like we'll be back to normal. Yeah. And what's, what's Linda's connection to the players? She started, Oh, uh, 17 or 18 years ago. She came up, she was working at Chicago Shakespeare theater in the box office and she knew their ticketing system. And when we, put in computers and a ticketing system. She came up to train people to do that. And she ended up staying, I think, most of the season as business manager. And then one thing led to another and she got cast and it just, she kept coming back. Right. So she, she definitely has a legacy with the players. Oh, yes. Uh, do you, do you think the players are in good hands moving forward, Greg? Oh, absolutely. I, 
you know, I decided about two and a half years ago that I was going to be moving on. And she was the first person I thought of with all her background with the theater. And I was really, really happy that the rest of the staff and the board agreed with me. And, you know, we went through that process. So I feel absolutely wonderful about the theater being in good hands. Great. Well, Greg, I think that that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for coming on and congratulations on your career with the players and congratulations on your next steps starting next year. Uh, it was lovely to have you on to talk about the 2021 season and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing all of the, the new shows this year. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.